I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. One of the most contested issues in fintech and financial regulation more generally is what is money? Now, on the one hand, there are long-held theories of money that prize whether or not any financial instrument can be used as a means of saving, uh, exchange, or as a unit of account. But as fintech is evolving, other questions are coming to the fore as well, especially as non-banks and other fintechs are offering, or claiming to offer, financial services that involve money and money substitutes. And because many of these business models are new, it's been hard for both regulators and other market participants to put their arms around whether or not these fintech entrepreneurs are able to live up to the promises they're making to their customers and to their financial backers. So to investigate this issue further, I have Dan Ari, a professor at Cornell, here with me today to walk me through the problem, the question of money, and to share his insights as to what empirically can be said about the kind of money on offer by new financial upstarts around the world. Dan, thanks so much for coming to the show. Thank you so much, Chris. It's great to be here. This is a really interesting couple of ideas and the research that you've done on money. What's the the, the title of your paper one more time? Uh, so the title of our paper, which is uh, published uh, with the Swift Institute, is Mapping the Shadow Payment System. We've also got another more provocative paper coming out soon called Bad Money. Bad Money. Okay, I already like this already. So what is good money and what is bad money when you're trying to define just what money is? Because obviously for, for fintechs, uh, this is key to some of their new and more innovative services. So good money, the best money, is the money that is issued by a state. So the notes and coins in your pocket and central bank reserves. But most of the money in modern financial systems are IOUs, promises that are made by a specific type of financial institution called a bank. Now, what makes bank money good money? Well, over decades, centuries, we've developed regulatory regimes that are designed to limit risk within those institutions. And more recently, we've adopted things like deposit insurance uh, and resolution regimes that are designed to make sure that that deposit promise that banks make to uh, give you your money back on demand and to make payments is something that's credible even when these institutions get into trouble and are insolvent. So that's good money. Presumably then bad money is where ultimately you're not able to get money, uh, either a depositor or someone who is owed money is not able to get that money on time um, as contractually agreed. And for whatever reason, either because of the economy or because of the person who's written the IOU, they're unable to get it. And that's obviously then bad. That's absolutely right. So what we went and did was globally uh, look at firms that are not banks that make contractual promises that look like have the feel of deposits, bank deposits. And then we asked the question, what do their contracts say? What regulatory regimes are they subject? And specifically, do they credibly promise to give you your money back or to transfer that money uh, away from that firm uh, on demand? 
And, and, and this study then included not just banks then, but also non-banks. So that's sort of uh, uh, some fintech firms, but just firms that were telling people, we can offer bank-like services for less? Uh, that's correct. So we were exclusively looking at non-bank institutions. So if you think of firms like Alipay or PayPal, M-Pesa, um, uh, things like that, that are... Providing payment services, providing a liability that looks and feels like money during good times, but then don't necessarily have the regulatory architecture or the contractual architecture that protects depositors in bad times. And what did you come up with? And was it uh, also just to be really sure, uh, which which jurisdictions were, were you thinking about? Sure. So we didn't have any jurisdictions in mind when we started out. We started by finding global globally dominant brands, in effect. So I mentioned Alipay before, uh, which operates predominantly in China. Institutions like PayPal, which are more or less global. TransferWise, which is a big uh, uh, foreign exchange payments provider. Uh, a lot of our sample was also uh, money remittance uh, firms and firms like mobile money platforms uh, in places like Sub-Saharan Africa, East Asia, and South America. What was the conclusion when you canvassed the world, at least parts of the world, to sort of figure out, are these uh, non-banks offering uh, good or bad money? The answer is? Not often. <laughs> so there are a few gold standard firms out there that uh, either through private law or through regulatory regimes have come close to offering the same sort of protection that bank depositors get. But there were very few and far in between. Uh, I had actually mentioned M-Pesa earlier. M-Pesa actually comes close uh, to the type of strategies that we would like to see that protects depositors. But for every M-Pesa, there was another firm, uh, probably 10 other firms, that in bad states of the world were going to disappoint depositors on the basis of their expectations from holding conventional bank deposits. When you were trying to define and think through the concept of of money, you were looking at not just the the institution, right, and the contractual arrangement between the person who needs to access certain kinds of resources, but you're also thinking about the the jurisdiction, like the the laws in the background, right, and and you're using that to try to define uh, whether or not the the money in a particular money system uh, is is ultimately going to live up to the aspirations. Of, of really the customers of a financial institution. When you try to generalize those combination of, of concerns um, outside of even the specific non-banking sector, but you know, they're across the fintech ecosystem, meaning even when you get to cryptocurrencies, there are firms that are trying to offer bank-like uh, uh, solutions for, for, for customers. What kinds of lessons learned do you think there are? So I think you can look at it two ways. One, you can look at the legal and regulatory regimes themselves. So for example, the New York bit license, we identify as the gold standard uh, in this field. But of course, then there's the question of whether the firms that are offering these services choose to be subject to the laws of that jurisdiction. And provocatively, uh, unfortunately, not a lot of our sample of uh, cryptocurrency exchanges actually choose to be subject to the jurisdictions that offer robust legal protections. So that's a big takeaway here, that given where global financial activity takes place, 
given where the best regulatory regimes are, we seem to see, especially cryptocurrency exchanges, but also other types of firms, avoiding being subject to the laws of those jurisdictions while continuing as best they can to offer services. One of the really interesting um, debates in the cryptocurrency space is, well, is a particular crypto asset or digital asset, is, is it money or is it a security or is it a utility? And I, I think what you're saying then is, well, even if you have created a particular digital asset, uh, where the, the the place where it's actually being traded uh, could impact your own ability as the creator of that digital asset to to make a an argument or claim that it is money like that. Ultimately, even if you create it, depending on where in the world it's ultimately being uh, used and traded, and and the infrastructure on which it's being traded, that all that informs the definition of of what is good or bad money, and as a result, claims that any digital asset is is money like uh, is is really a, a bigger, broader question that, in some part, is even beyond the immediate control of the sponsor or the creator of the digital asset. I think that's absolutely right, and I think the key here is the question of does general corporate insolvency law, and specifically the standard protections that we see in that law in terms of an automatic stay on enforcement by creditors. Uh, and any sort of uh, sharing of losses by those creditors during the proceeding applies. If it does, your claim on that firm is not going to have the properties of money when that firm gets into trouble. Why? Because a legal process will be instituted, and you're not going to be able to take your money out until that legal process is completed. And through World Bank data, we know that most corporate insolvency proceedings in the world last months, if not years, and in many developing jurisdictions where some of these uh, uh, products, particularly money remittance products, are particularly desirable, we're talking between two and three years um, for an average corporate insolvency proceeding to take place, and then with unsecured creditors getting pennies on the dollar. That's not the promise that a bank has made you, but that is effectively the promise that a lot of these shadow payment platforms are making. Dan, thanks so much for your time. This was really interesting, and I think it's going to be uh, fascinating to see exactly how this space uh, e evolves, particularly when customers are responding to any of the fragilities that you are uh, bringing to light. Yeah, thank you so much, Chris. Great to talk about this, and I love the podcast. Keep up the good work. Thank you. listening to Dan, it struck me that the commercial strength of any financial service or solution is ultimately dependent on a complex array of factors, from the promise and ingenuity of ideas to the often overlooked backdrop of contracts, rules, and regimes supporting a particular financial infrastructure. Now, this makes evaluating any new piece of innovation a more nuanced exercise than is often presumed, and one needing the insight and input from a wide variety of perspectives. Let's hope our regulators and fintechs will be able to get it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. -M -M -E We'd love to hear from you. Produced by CQ Roll Call.